Thank you, Steve. Good morning, everyone. So good to see you all. Welcome to those that are online as well, that are watching, either live or in the future. Pretty sure you weren't watching in the past. That would be a good trick if you could watch it in the past. Technology isn't quite there yet. Um, This morning, as we continue in our series on Ecclesiastes, you can tell from the title slide that I wasn't quite sure what to call this message. Uh, Could be drawing near to God. It was a good churchy kind of title. Or how not to worship like a pagan. Or with apologies to Carly Simon, you probably think this worship's about you. You're so vain. Um, Koaleth. Uh, Koaleth is the name that's given to the teacher, or it means the teacher. It literally means Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a book like Isaiah and like John that has the title of its writer. So Koaleth, Ecclesiastes, the preacher, the teacher, all the same. Solomon, we understand, uh, to be the teacher. He's acting as our guide through this life under the sun. And You remember last week in chapter 4, he was talking about how it's not good to be alone. He was talking about relationships and how we have relationship with each other and the importance of being reintegrated in relationship. And leaving chapter 4 and going into his next little thought in chapter 5, he now turns his mind to, while he's talking about relationships, he wants to talk about our relationship with God. And... Solomon notices that things are not good in how Israel is coming to the temple to worship. And not that he's one to talk. As, as we've mentioned, Solomon has, is speaking from his life experience. And if you know anything about Solomon, one of his life experiences is that although he knew God, although God blessed him with such great wisdom, he went out and kind of did everything under the sun, and that included pagan worship. He worshipped at least four other gods at various points in his life. And he's now, in his old age, writing this book. He's looking at the nation of Israel, who are in Jerusalem, where he built the temple that God gave instructions to build so that God could be in their presence, and they're going to the temple, and they're worshiping. And he is not sure that they exactly understand how to worship God, that they've not learned. And maybe you've been in this social situation before. Maybe, maybe you've been in this situation before where you have offended somebody, or you want to manage people's expectations of you, or you want to somehow uh, control people, and and you just go into this social situation where you are aware that you are not really on the greatest terms, but you go in kind of pretending nothing is wrong, and talking and about yourself, and talking about others, and you know, all the great things that you're going to do, and things that are happening, and everybody's just kind of standing around looking at you, thinking, you're not reading the room very well. We're all kind of upset at you, and you're just trying to talk your way through it. Guys, I know you know what I'm talking about. You know you're in the doghouse because you've done something, and you go home, and you just think, if I bring flowers and I bring chocolates, and I just talk about all the great stuff we're going to do, we're going to go see your family on the weekend and all of that stuff, I can just talk my way through this. Meanwhile, your wife's eyes are getting narrower, (laughs) her jaw is clenching, the shoulder is getting colder, right? Because we're fools. And we think we can just charm our way out of our mess, or we think we can manipulate the situation by our words, and so we just kind of try and talk our way out of it. We try to imagine our way out of it. Richard Foster, in the book Seeking the Kingdom, he says, one reason we can hardly bear to remain silent is that it makes us feel so helpless 
to be silent. We're so accustomed to relying upon words to manage and control others. If we are silent, who will take control? He says, the tongue is our most powerful weapon of manipulation. A fantastic stream of words flows from us because we are in a constant process of adjusting our public image. He goes on in terms of knowing that we're wrong. He says, if we've done something wrong and discover that you know about it, we are very tempted to help you understand our actions and explain them. Silence is one of the deepest disciplines of the spirit simply because it puts the stopper on all self-justification. And Solomon sees a glimpse of this as people come to the temple. Solomon sees that the people that are coming into worship, they're worshiping in a way that is not honoring to God. And the question then becomes, how do we worship? How do we approach God safely? How do we approach a God who is holy, safely? A God who's holy unlike us. And that's what Ecclesiastes 5, 1 to 7 is about. It's about how we enter into worship, how we are able to draw near to God, and specifically how not to worship God. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 to 7. I'll just pray before we begin reading. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for uh, Koaleth and the teacher, the preacher, the one who is guiding us in this. Father, we pray that we take each of these um, concepts of wisdom and we apply them to our lives and we understand how there's a message for Israel from Solomon, but there is a message for us as well, that your word is living and active and it never returns void. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 to 7. Um, Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear God." Well, we see from the very first verse that Solomon has a specific relationship to God in mind. He talks about going into the house of God and drawing near. And then in verse 2, he says, being in the presence of God. So we we see right away that now Solomon is talking about something that has to do with our drawing near to God, our, our presence with God. The phrase drawing near comes from a very generic Hebrew word, carob, to approach. And it's to approach with the anticipation that something will occur in the approach. And it has a really wide range of meaning in the Bible. It's used a lot because it's such a common kind of dependable word. You need its context to understand it. Uh, For instance, in the Bible, this word is used when armies draw near to each other. And then it's implied that because armies draw near to each other that, you know, military things happen in that drawing near, that proximity. At another time in Scripture, the same word used, carob, is used when a husband and a wife draw near. And when a husband and a wife draw near, there's the anticipation of, you know, husband and wife things. And so this drawing near is that something's going to happen when you draw near. 
When it's used in relation to God, the word speaks about what occurs as we draw near. It's, it's used in Exodus 3, 5, when Moses tells, or sorry, God tells Moses to draw near to the burning bush and remove his sandals because he's on holy ground. Uh, in Exodus 16, uh, Israel drew near to God via the presence of the priest Aaron, so he was a mediator of that drawing near. Uh, in Deuteronomy 5, the tribes of Israel drew near to the mountain of Sinai in order to receive the law from God. And also, when Israel is drawn near for judgment in Joshua and in Isaiah, they are drawn near for judgment to take place. And so Solomon here in this, in this paragraph is talking about our drawing near. We're going to draw near to God in anticipation of something taking place to interact with God, to have communion with God, perhaps even to be judged by God. There's never anything casual about this kind of drawing near that's signified physically that Solomon sees of the people entering the temple. They're going into the house of the Lord, where the glory of God dwelled. They were trying to draw near to him. Now, Israel loved the idea that they were God's chosen people. They had the temple He dwelt in their midst. They had his law. He spoke to them, as Paul says later, at many times and in many ways by the prophets. And God worked miracles to rescue them from their enemies. He covenanted with them to be their God. And in response to God's love, Israel loved and honored God. Sort of. Not perfectly, by any stretch of the imagination. And it's the same reason that we love God, right? When we think about drawing near, that phrase that we use, draw near to God. We love God because he first loved us. We we draw near to God because he has drawn near to us. Christians here today love this. We love this phrase. We love this idea. We love this action of, of drawing close to God, of being safe in his presence. And God wants us to be safe in his presence. He he provided the law and he provided the temple to Israel so that they would be safe in his presence when they drew near to him, if they would follow that law and honor that temple. But again, as I said, Solomon is more than a little bit worried about what he sees in the worship of his people as they go into the temple to worship. He sees a dangerous foolishness amongst the religious people who are entering into the house of God. So Solomon has looked out over the world and he's seen lots of foolishness in the world. And now he looks and he says, I see foolish religious people too. I see religious people who are trying to be close to God and they are going about it the wrong way. I think it's worth noticing, it's interesting... I think at this point in the book, Koaleth, the teacher Solomon, has written over 2,000 words of observations and challenges to, co- to conventional wisdom and to conventional behavior. And up until this point, he has yet to give a single direct instruction. You can go back and reread the first four chapters, and I don't think you will find one. But in chapter 5, as Solomon finally turns to how we are to worship God, He gives at least three direct imperatives, three direct commands for the first time in his writing. And he says, guard your steps, let your words be few, and pay what you vow. What is the problem that Solomon sees in the worship of God's people? Well, it's selfish. It's self-worship. The people think that the worship is about them. 
He, he, he's like that, he's like you or, or, or that dull husband that I talked about at the beginning when, when you're coming into the presence of people that you should know better and you are just foolishly carrying on as if nothing's wrong and everything's okay and there's nothing that you need to do. Not remembering that there is a personal history that you need to deal with. And, and this is what Solomon sees. People are coming into the presence of God and they're not reading the room. They're, they're not remembering their national or personal history with God. They're not recognizing God as God. They think the worship is about them. They're not guarding their steps. They're not listening for God's voice. They're not aware of their sin and offense. They are hasty and impulsive. They're not humble in acknowledging God is in heaven. They are not being obedient. They are not being honest and sincere in their vows to God. And Solomon is concerned that they will be on the wrong end of God's anger if this is the case. Solomon's quite sure these are all bad ideas. This is not how we're meant to approach God. Because they're ultimately selfish. The the kind of worship that's in the text here that Solomon describes would be very common or typical of pagan and foreign god worship. This is what I mean. Hopefully, most of you will remember the, the, the classic showdown between Elijah and the priests of, of Baal on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18. There's 450 priests of Baal on one side, and there's Elijah on the other side. And they build two altars. They get two bulls. They put the bulls on the altar, and it's going to be a test of deities. And one of the gods is going to call down fire on this altar on the top of the mountain. And the 450 priests of Baal, they start in the morning and they start chanting and dancing and calling and crying and beseeching and begging that Baal would light this altar on fire and prove the God of Israel wrong. And comes noon and nothing's happened and Elijah says, maybe you should cry harder, maybe you should be louder, maybe you'll get his attention. And so they start cutting themselves and they start doing vows and they start doing rituals in order to get their God's attention, to get him to act on their behalf in this moment. And they keep that up until supper time and still nothing happens. And then Elijah goes to his altar and his bowl And he gets him to pour 12 jars of water over all of the wood in the altar until the water fills a trench around it. And then he says in verse 26, Let it be known that you are God, I am your servant, and I am doing what your word asks. And immediately, the stones and the wood and the sacrifice is all consumed in fire, instantly. And that was all it took, was just Elijah acknowledging that God is God, I'm your servant, and I'm doing what you ask, not what I'm asking. And that's cool. But the point is really about the priests of Baal. You see, what Solomon saw was a bunch of Israelites who should know better, who were worshiping like pagans, who were filling their worship with requests for what they want, and they were trying to negotiate with God, to make a vow with God. If you would just do this, the the Israelites were bringing their dreams and their fantasies and their desires to God and filling up their time with God with their endless words and, and ideas and insincere vows that Solomon observes that they don't even pay, they don't even follow through on. They're not even being honest with God. Their worship of God is self-centered like the pagans, they, and they don't even know that their worship is evil that their words are not pleasing to God, and that they are causing themselves to sin. And on top of all of this, Solomon knows what every Israelite should know is that God never even asked for these vows. 
All the way back in Deuteronomy, in the second telling of the law, we're told, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. This is the same advice that Solomon is giving. His wisdom is right out of the law. For it would be a sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be a sin in you. You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. God never asked for the vows. But if you're going to come to him voluntarily and make a vow, if you're going to make a deal with the most honest, most just God being in the universe, you better follow through on what you just vowed. God's like, that's the deal you want with me? Okay, I'm going to keep my end. You better keep your end. And that's what Solomon is saying here. That it is a sin to vow. It's a sin to come to God with all of this vain words without any intention of obeying it. And they're not even vows that God have asked for anyway. He doesn't ever ask us for anything, to, to commit to something that we have to do so that he will do something. What about your worship? When you enter into the presence of God, when we draw near, have you ever stopped to think about what most of your conversations with God are about when you talk to God? Are a lot of your conversations with God, is a lot of your prayer about us, about you, about what we need, about what we want? Are, are some of our thoughts about God that he should be doing things different to make things better? Well, what about those impulsive thoughts? Solomon puts our spoken words together with our impulsive thoughts in verse 2 and in our dreams in verse 3. And so maybe you don't say it directly to God. Maybe you're wise enough not to actually just pray the things that you want, but you're thinking it how God should be doing things different, or maybe just daydreaming about how sweet it would be if God just brought some appropriate justice or even natural consequences to that person who offended you. It's like, God, why won't you just smite that person? It would be so satisfying. And we daydream about, oh, if I was God, I know what I'd do. And you would delight in that if God would just fulfill your dreams. Or have you ever tried to bargain with God, make some promises? If you do this, God, I'll do that. And you have to understand what a vow is, is you're trying to bind God and get him in your debt by making a vow. These are selfish ways to worship. They're pagan ways to worship. They treat God as though he's an idol who we provide for. And after we provide our little gifts to the idol, then they owe us, you know, bountiful crops or something. They're a way of trying to bind God and make him in our debt so that he will do what we want. And, and here's the reality of vows. What, what making vows and deals with God actually exhibits is an absolute lack of faith in God to do us good. We think we need to get God bound in a vow so that he will do the thing that we need him to do because we don't trust him to do good unless we have him tied up in some sort of negotiation. And so ultimately, vows are about a lack of faith because we don't really trust God will do us good unless we somehow negotiate the good out of them. And that is a dangerous way to enter the presence of God. Rather, we should remember that God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? God is for us and not against us. We do not need to negotiate a bargain with God for him to do us good. It's insulting to the goodness and the mercy and the grace of God 
to be focused on vows and on what we're lacking and what we want. What, what making vows does is actually cut us off from the grace and mercy of God. If you actually succeed in getting God into a contract with you, then now your relationship with God is a transaction. That's what Solomon doesn't want for his people. Right? He sees these people going in making you know, these long vows and these crazy promises to God. And, and literally, God forbid that they should succeed and actually get God to negotiate the contract with them, because as soon as you're in a contract relationship with God, then you have now nullified his grace and his mercy. God's grace and mercy are no longer a free gift if you have just bound it up in a vow. Augustine says that God gives where he finds empty hands. A man whose hands are full cannot receive a gift. So when we go into the presence of God... We should not be going in thinking we can offer him anything. Because God gives where he finds empty hands. If our hands are full of what we think we can vow to God, we disqualify ourselves from the free gift. And this is not wise. In fact, Solomon says it is offensive to the grace of God. It's sinful because God sees our vows for what they are, that they are an outward show of words without an inward act of obedience. We have no interest in pain. And ultimately, he says in verse 6, that it tests the anger of God. And he says, why would you want to make God angry at you by worshiping this way? Unfortunately, Israel's worship only went downhill from here. They did not learn from Solomon's wisdom Or did they follow Solomon's direct commands to guard their steps and to not vow? The prophets who follow this time period are a testimony to how offensive the worship of Israel became. But even as God spoke into his people who were worshiping him in this outrageous way, even as he spoke of his anger towards their worship through the prophets, he continued to reveal to Israel the true worship that he actually desired from them. Amos 5, 21 to 24 says, this is God speaking through the prophet Amos, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, and I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. He's not happy with how they're worshiping. Rather, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. He says, all the talk and the babble and the show of your worship is nothing if it is insincere and you're not following what I really desire. Hosea chapter 6 is an awesome chapter about the love of the Lord returning to his rebellious people. And he says, I've cut you down by the preaching of my prophets, and I've slain you with my words. My judgment has shone forth like the light among you. And why has God needed so harshly to correct his people? He concludes in Hosea, for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than in burnt offerings. He says, I've shown you how to honor me and to worship me rightly in justice and righteousness and loyalty and in knowledge of me. And this is not what Solomon sees. He just sees people coming selfishly with their demands of God, trying to negotiate with God, not understanding God, not recognizing that he is in heaven and they are on earth. And he says, this is not going to end well. So what is right worship then? 
Solomon sums it up very simply at the end of verse 7. He says, rather, rather than all of this nonsense, rather fear God. (laughs) There's a whole lot bundled in those last two words, right? Solomon just kind of leaves it there. He says, instead of all of that, just fear God. Just reverence God. God has never desired anything in our worship other than what Elijah demonstrated and the law pictured for us. Humility before God, an acknowledgement of our sin, a recognition that it's he that speaks and we that listen and we do what he speaks. A repentant heart is one that agrees with God that his law is good, his ways are good, and delights in walking in those ways, all the ways that he talked about with Israel, righteousness and justice and loyalty and in the knowledge of God, walking humbly, doing good. 1 Samuel 15, this is stuff they should have known. Samuel already said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. It's probably the prophet Micah who asks the best self-reflecting question any person could ask themselves before they draw near to God. The prophet Micah in chapter 6 says this. He asks himself this. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for all my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That's proper worship. That's how to draw near. But the problem is, from Solomon's perspective on the ground level of of mankind living his life under the sun, the perspective from covenant people Israel is that we are no better off ourselves. We get to the end of this and we just think, oh, we just have to change how we behave. If we behave correctly, then somehow we will get this right. We'll eventually measure up. But the real question of Ecclesiastes chapter 5 is, can anyone truly worship God as he ought to be worshipped? On our own, we will fail as often and as badly as Israel did, as Solomon did himself. But there's good news, because we have to remember that Ecclesiastes is the darkness that amplifies the light. Ecclesiastes points us, if you'll pardon the pun, from life under the sun towards life under the sun. The Old Testament anticipates the death and resurrection of Christ, and the New Testament applies the good news of the death and resurrection of Christ. And so as you're in Ecclesiastes 5 and you're thinking, this is getting really dark, this is getting really depressing, Solomon, I need a glimmer of hope, I need some sort of light to shine into this predicament that we're in, unable to draw near, unable to approach God, unable to be perfect worshipers and true worshipers. I need something to solve this for me so that I can be safely in the presence of God. And the answer, of course, is in the cross and in the person of Jesus. He is the true worshiper. Jesus listens to and obeys God the Father. Jesus does no evil or sin. He worships entirely in spirit and in truth. Jesus is able to fulfill all of his promises. He made extraordinary vows and he kept them. He is the God who is in heaven, and he is the new man who was born on earth. 
He is the Word of God that never returns empty. You see, Jesus never has to watch his words because he is the Word. He never has to worry that his, his vows and his words are going to result in emptiness because his word never returns empty, because he fulfills all of his vows. He said, tear this temple down, and in three days I will rebuild it. Who can make a vow like that? Who, who can make that promise? Yeah, go ahead, kill me. I'll be alive again in three days. Jesus can make the vow, and Jesus can fulfill it. Jesus can speak the word, and it will never return empty. He does no evil. He does no sin. He listens to and obeys. He is the perfect and true worshiper that we need. The relationship that was broken in Eden between us and God needs a gospel solution. Jesus was born, lived, died, and was resurrected into a new glorified body as full satisfaction for our sin. It was the pleasure of God to provide his son that we could once again be able to truly draw near to him. This is what was missing. This is what was lacking. The the separation that began at Eden was that God gave Israel, God chose the people Israel. He gave them his law. He gave them his presence. He gave them the temple. He said, this is how I can dwell among you. This is how we can restore relationship. But it was never perfect. They could never fulfill it. And so God says, I'm still going to do it. I'm going to provide for you a perfect law keeper. I'm going to provide for you a perfect worshiper. And through him, you will be able to draw near. Through him, you will be able to safely come into my presence. Through him, you will be able to enter into my throne room. By him, we who are far off may draw near again without fear. So when our worship falls short, our hope is not in trying harder. Our hope is not in following the rules closer. We enter into the throne room of God and draw near to God entirely through what he has provided, the free gift of his son and the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews explains this just about as clearly as he can, that the temple and the sacrifices were but a shadow of the true worship and the true worshiper that was to come in Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 10, he says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. See, it's not about our promises to God. It's about his promise to us. And this is what Solomon saw. Solomon saw a whole bunch of people going into the temple making a lot of promises to God. (laughs) And forgetting that it was his promise to us. He saw a lot of people going into the house of God with a lot of words and a lot of empty dreams and a lot of just talk about themselves wanting to control God. And they were going in with their hands full of things that they could offer God and not able to receive the gift of God's promise. So whenever we worship, whenever you worship, 
Whether it's here in the assembly of God's people and we delight in coming into the house of God and going to the house of the Lord and being drawn into God's presence here, or if it's at home among your family members around the kitchen table, or whenever you worship, if it's in the quiet of your prayer closet, it doesn't matter where. Wherever you are drawing near to God, as you're driving to work, as you're drawing, driving home from work, When you want to draw near to God, as you draw near to God, we draw near to God confidently, but only carefully through the person and work of Jesus Christ, which we must claim for our own. It's only through Jesus Christ that we're able to enter into the presence of God. It's only by Jesus Christ that he is able to draw near to us. And that is only possible if we repent. It's only possible if if we agree with God that we have sinned, that we are imperfect and inconsistent worshipers, that we have fallen short and even rebelled against his glory and goodness. If we go into the presence of God the way these Israelites were going into the temple, full of our own words and full of our own dreams and full of our own vows, then he will have very little for us. But if we go in humbly, remembering that God is in heaven and we are on earth, if we confess our sin, and we humble ourselves, and we cover our mouths, at least to begin with, just just let God be God when we go into his presence. And if we go into God's presence like that, acknowledging him, humble, that we are his servants, he's not our servant, then we may experience his presence because of what he's given us freely in his son so that we can draw near to him again. And that's what we want. We, like Israel, love the idea. We love the phrase. We love the thought of drawing near to God. We want to draw near to God. And he said, this is how you do it. You do it through my son. You do it humbly, acknowledging me, receiving the free gift, repenting in your mind and your heart, agreeing with me that this is the way to come into my presence. This is the way to live your life under the sun and under the sun. And so this is a challenge. Like I said, this is the first time in Ecclesiastes that Solomon is given direct imperatives. Guard your steps. Watch what you say. Pay what you vow. And so as you go into your worship time, it's just a time of reflection. It's just a time of thinking. How do I worship God? How do I go into his presence? How do I treat him? How do I talk to him? Am I understanding how it is that I have peace with God and the gift that he's offering And that this worship really isn't about me, it's about him. And the beauty of God's relationship with us is that as we make our worship about him, all the things that we can ask or imagine enter into our lives. We we don't have to fret about all the things that we think that God doesn't have control of. He's got control of them, and he will do us good. We're not to negotiate with God, we're to accept his gift. Let's pray. Father God, I know for myself when I pray, when I get going in life, a lot of my time spent with you can just be what would be great if it would work out for my benefit. Sometimes it would be, I don't understand why you're not doing things differently than I would. And I admit sometimes it's even a negotiation. (laughs) Just don't let this happen. Just don't let that happen. Just... I'll do this if you could do that. Or could I just have that? Father, 
Forgive us because in our flesh, as Richard Foster pointed out, we are so tempted to try to control things with our words. We want to control what you think of us, what other people think of us. We want to control our justification of what we've done and what we haven't done. Father, it's just in our human nature to worship like the Israelites worshipped. It's in our human nature to just treat you as though you're a person and not a God. To treat you like you're just another part of our life that we somehow can influence or control by our charm or by our, you know, negotiation. And Father, we just have to step back from that foolishness. That's what Solomon saw. He saw the foolishness of that kind of worship among his people. And he said, no. That's not how you go to God. We need to remember that you are a God who is for us, that we don't need to negotiate anything with you, that your grace and your mercy are free gifts to us, that we come into your presence in awe of you, and that if we repent and we recognize you as God, if we change our minds and our hearts to acknowledge that you know and we don't, and we want to follow you rather than have you follow us, then true worship can begin. But that's only possible by what your son Jesus has done. So, Father, take our hearts and mold them, take our minds and transform them, conform us to be thoughtful and guard our steps as we come into your presence. Not because under the blood of Jesus we have anything to worry about. We can come confidently into the throne room of grace, but only because of what Christ has done. Not because we're such great worshipers. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.